Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Definitely, I think before this year, I really felt like I was white knuckling a bit with my career. That I was like, oh, if I can just get that first feature made, then I'll be okay because then I can do this. Then these features will get made, and then and then then it's like, do you know what, man? That's all the middle. Like, don't bother yourself with the middle because it's none of my business. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to author of books and writer and director of films, Nat Lutzema. Perfect. Hi, this is Steve Whiteley, comedian, actor, filmmaker and writer, all-round ADHD creative. And welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts. And we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond. Balancing Acts is made in association with the Comedy Crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Nat is one of those polymaths. She is a BAFTA-nominated writer, a director, former comedian and author. She's written for the likes of Mock the Week, 8 out of 10 Cats. And as part of her sketch group, Jigsaw, Nat had two Radio 4 series and three sellout Edinburgh runs. As an author, her adult non-fiction, Cuckoo in the Nest, was a Sunday Express Book of the Year. And Girl Out of Water, which was her debut children's book, was longlisted for the Waterstones Children Book of the Year. Nat currently has a slate of numerous features in development. This was a really, really enjoyable conversation, which took a turn that I wasn't really expecting. And I'm not sure uh, Nat was uh, expecting to talk about it either. We kick things off talking about how she transitioned from first uh, in her student days being a radio presenter to then performing stand-up comedy, sketch, and then to becoming a writer and director of films and author. She explains why she stopped acting and performing stand-up to focus on her writing and directing career and breaks down how she took on a DIY approach to learning the craft of filmmaking. She explains why she's never Googled herself or her reviews as a stand-up comedian or filmmaker. Nat talks about how before doing gigs during stand-up she would manifest them going really well, and how she's incorporated manifestation on a regular basis into her filmmaking career. And then this, which we briefly touched upon, is something that 
we went into great detail um, pouring over in this conversation and I think it's really interesting and important to hear Nat's experience because you know so often you can grind and you can work really hard but if you don't have it's either like the right mindset but also this feeling of something greater than um just the need and desire to do well in your career whether it's like a sense of well-being just this idea of something greater than yourself and i feel like that's something that is manifested like what i did there uh in this conversation so we dive in deep on on how she approaches manifestation and what made it click into gear at the beginning of the year why she decided to adopt this this kind of approach and mindset now also explains why she does so many different creative endeavors and what it is she enjoys about starting something new she talks about the importance of not self not being self-depreciating and being kind and empathetic towards yourself and then on the industry side of things she explains how she's met her producers and talks about why obviously it's so important to have a solid working relationship with your agent there is loads here but for me yeah, the big takeaway from this is how she has adopted this this new approach and how and why it's it's working for her and remember if you like this episode if you like balancing acts in general then uh, please do rate and review it on podcast i'd be much appreciated oh and you may have noticed there's new artwork what do we think of the artwork do we like it i mean i like it what do you think is it, are you a fan of it my face is no longer is no longer on it which you know some people might argue is a good thing but uh, I would be very much interested and welcome your opinions if you if you have any on the subject. And also, how are you enjoying the podcast in general and the conversations? Is there anything that you would like me to focus on? Any any feedback would be very much welcome. Okay, so without further ado, over to Nat. There's so many different things that you have done in your career, and, and one of them obviously is um, direct writing, directing uh, shorts and features. Is that one of your primary focuses right now? Yeah, that's the main one. That that's really the is the main one, one right now. Yeah, yeah. I've got um, a couple of features that I've written that are with directors now that okay. like hopefully will get funding and on their feet in the okay. new in the brave new world um and i've got a horror feature that i've written uh, co-written and i'm hoping to direct spring next year Fantastic. and so that's everything's sort of focused on that comedies and horrors great so taking a step back just rewinding mm. was your first sort of uh, phrase into into the entertainment shtick um <laughs> via performing comedy because i know you're in your sketch yeah. group jigsaw was that how you kick things off Oh, actually, no, I say that. I uh, I was at university and I had a little radio show. And okay. I don't know why I say little. Well, I do. It was in a cupboard. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was a little radio show. And um, yeah, and I won Best Female Presenter at the Student Radio Awards just after I graduated. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I worked at Glastonbury Festival's radio station for a few years. Yeah. And then I helped the guy there set up a radio station at the Edinburgh Festival which ah. I hadn't been to before. And so I went there and I was helping him run the radio station. I was presenting shows and I just had comedians in every day and I was talking to them about their shows and I was going to see as much comedy as I wanted for free because I had a press pass, which is, you know, it, it was only years later when I went back and had to pay that I realized what a massive privilege that was. Yeah. But then I, I completely fell in love with stand-up, um, which is so funny because I saw loads of stand-ups. I remember seeing Ian Stone 
um, gig to like a very small room of people. I'm sure he won't thank me for telling this story now. Um, but then when I saw him back in London, I realized he usually gigs to hundreds of people yeah. in big noisy clubs, but I'd really enjoyed him and loads of comics like him gigging to like 20 in a dank little cave. I was That's like, oh, this is stand-up. I yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah, the intimacy of it in those venues, especially yeah. when you're seeing someone that is on the, you know, just on the verge of breaking through. You know, I was there, yeah, I saw well, them early doors. I, mean, I wasn't even aware of any of that. So like I come oh, back okay. and some sketch group, some student sketch group, no, not students, I would have been a bit more savvy than that, but some sketch group I saw performed to six people to me would have been on a par with McIntyre who I'd have seen perform to, you know, three times as many, but still not many people at all. Yeah. And cause yeah. So it gave me quite a wonky view of the stand up world, but in, in quite a healthy way. Cause I was like, Oh, that's stand up. You gig to like 12 people. Okay, cool. I'd love to do that. So you went from there to transitioning to then becoming a performer. Yeah. Yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't performed before at all. Okay. So it was kind of learning on my feet. So did you start doing that open mic circuit? Yeah. Yeah, I did a um, stand-up course, actually, the Laughing Horse comedy course. Okay. And um, I, I don't know, I think people can be sniffy about those courses and be like, oh, you can't teach funny. And it's like, no, dickhead, but you can teach someone etiquette and you can teach someone, like, um, when someone flashes a light at you from the back of a room, like how to incorporate that and keep on gigging and wrap your set up and things like that, which actually really are important for not annoying you know, grumpy men called Darren, who are mainly who run comedy clubs. <laughs> and um, yeah, and like one of the hardest things we did in that stand-up course, and it was only like six weeks, once a, once a week on a Monday, um, was just stand up in front of six other people in a room mm. and tell jokes to them. And obviously they're not really there to laugh because they're thinking of their own set. But, yeah. you know, it, it's, I just don't think you want the first time you ever tell jokes in front of strangers to be actually at a gig where they're expecting entertainment. Yeah, I have. Uh, I no, no. I I fully agree that I also did a stand-up course. I did the Logan Murray one. And, oh yeah, uh, that was really good. Yeah, it was yeah. really good. But I found it so hard at the same time for the same re- for the reasons mm-hmm. you've just described. And uh, yeah, I mean, first gig, for the, for the gig, the the sort of I don't know if you had a graduation gig. Yeah, we, we did. Your friend- Camden Head in Camden, the L-shaped room. That's where we had ours. That's really? Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. I'm still so fond of that room, even though it literally Lovely. couldn't be worse for comedy. Yeah, yeah. Like, I got, half I've the got... audience can't see the other half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have fond And that is like a warm, lovely feeling. Oh, so this is what it's like. And then you go out after that to do your first gig, and it's like, okay, yeah. I may have under- underestimated this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had like a really accelerated first year. Like, I just... I, I just think I didn't have a bad gig for about 10 months. So okay. I just had that like... Um, I don't know, I think it's called manifesting, you know, when you just, you don't have any negative thoughts in your head. You're just like, I can do this and I have already done it and it was brilliant. Yeah. And like, so I didn't even know what it felt like to bomb. So I'd just get up on stage and smash it night after night. And I'd do about three gigs a night because there were just so many gigs around at that time. That was 2007. And I think maybe there was a little bit of a gap in the market for like female comics. There, there really weren't many when I started. Like, yeah. as in there had been more perhaps and they had graduated onto tv and there was perhaps just a little hole at that moment but yeah i just never stopped gigging and then i think about 10 months in i started to do really big clubs and then i was like oh oh this is horrible no i don't like this at all and and this that whole period was just you doing stand-up as a solo stand-up oh i had a day job 
as well. Yeah. Okay. But in terms of the performing side of things, you weren't yet performing as part of a sketch group. No, the sketch group, um, the first sketch group I was in was called Super Clump, and that was nine of us. Um, okay. Me, Tom Crane, Josh Widdicombe, Henry Packard, Mike Wozniak, Sean Harris, wow. Henry Widdicombe, oh, Ben Partridge. That's the nine. Wow, it's right. quite the lineup. Yeah. How, do you, how did that come about, that process of putting a, a sketch group together and, and choosing those people? I... I don't know. I, de- I definitely, I wasn't one of the originators. I'm fairly sure somebody approached me and me and Tom Crane were a couple at the time. <laughs> so perhaps they wanted one of us, but you have to invite both. <laughs> but um, I, I, I like to think they wanted us both. And yeah, I, it was the most unworkably large, ridiculous sketch group because there were nine of us and half were based in Wales and half were based in London. Wow. And I'd say about a third of the group needed to nap several times a day. So <laughs> any writing session usually had a dead body on the sofa somewhere. Um, and then we did, and I can't remember where the decision was to, to set that group up, but um, it was perfectly timed because um, John Briley was doing the five pound fringe that year at Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And I still think the five pound fringe was just the most fantastic idea. It was just like a little less swanky than your pleasance and your underbelly and all the rest of it venues. Um, but tickets were only five pounds. And I just think like with free, cause I've done free shows, loads mm-hmm. of them. And I think your audience often walk in like, Oh God, what's this then? And when they've paid 15 quid, they're like, you had better be hilarious. In yeah, a way they're that we all in understand there. is universally hilar- hilarious. Yeah. And with five quid, they're like, okay, well you're a sandwich and a Coke. Yeah. So go on, entertain me as much <laughs> as a sandwich and a Coke would. And we're like, yeah, bloody can. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. It's so hit and miss on the, on the free fringe. I feel like often yeah. it's a case of, oh, it's pissing down with rain outside. We'll just go here to dry off in this show yeah. that someone has slaved over, uh, mm-hmm. but it's uh, somewhere to keep warm for an hour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely get that feeling. Although there's nothing like being a hot ticket, like getting a good review. Yeah. And I never, I've never Googled myself and I've never read my reviews. So never. when I did free fringe, no. Was that, no. was that just a, that was a decision you made early on? When I first started stand up, I'd gone to university with Josie Long and Josie said, um, never ever Google yourself and never read a review. And I was like, okay. And I didn't even question it. And it just became a habit. And, um, and there's definitely been times at Edinburgh where like, I knew I'd got a good one because I'd have a huge long queue in the pissing rain outside my free fringe venue. Yeah. Equally, there were times I knew I'd had a bad one because people would be like, oh, you're right, mate. <laughs> yeah yeah it's like i know what you're referring to but i don't care and it can't hurt me if i don't read it yeah ignorance and is bliss I, ignorance is bliss and also like i know what i think of myself i know when i've had a good gig and i know when i've had a bad gig so i, I don't i don't need anyone external to to tell me what i think of myself and my stand-up like i know i i i know all my flaws don't worry about that that's a great attitude um, to have have you carried that over to the other mediums that you've started mm. working in since? Yeah. 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 I don't think, I think I've accidentally happened upon a couple of reviews for like short films. Um, and actually I think maybe there is more of a benefit to be gained in reading a review of your film because it's so collaborative. Mm. Like there are so many, you know, and if the score gets particular praise and attention, I think I want to know that actually, because I know what I think of that score, but I, mm. I'm not the composer, so I'm not quite as close to it as when I'm the stand-up. Yeah. 
because with stand-up, like a lot of the time, they'll talk about what you look like, the way you stand, the way, you know, these things that you're like, that's just intrinsically me. Yeah. And I can't change that. So. It feels more of a personal attack at times. Oh, yeah. And sometimes it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, Fuck off, mate. Get into yeah. therapy. Don't take it out on me. Um, and no, and I don't think I really bother with book reviews. Like people send them to me, but I don't really read them because I think, well, you wouldn't send me a bad one. So I just know that's a good one. Okay. Um, yeah. Right. I, th- I think sometimes it's just none of my business. I think it was Jen Brister. Um, stand-up comedian who said um, that they're not for me like those reviews are for people deciding whether or not to come and see me Mm. and well I have to be there so (laughs) there's no point me making my mind up yeah and I was like yeah it's true that's a very healthy attitude so going back to uh, the performing how what did you prefer and were you doing both at the same time stand-up and and sketch Uh, I did prefer sketch because it definitely felt more collaborative and less lonely okay and uh i definitely felt that when i was on stage making male members of the sketch group laugh i felt it got the audience laughing quicker and that was interesting wow like younger audiences i think genuinely didn't seem to mind too much like what sex was standing on stage but definitely with like an older more conservative with a little c audience i had a much easier ride with men validating my humor on stage right so interesting. And were you, were you performing stand-up simultaneously while you were also performing in the sketch group? Did you continue doing yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And actually, it did help my stand-up. It made me listen more. Because when, you're, when, when I was first writing sketch anyway, um, you know, it's not that you try and give yourself the punchlines, but you are aware who has the punchlines. Mm-hmm. And then you realize when you're on stage that a lot of the time, the person saying the punchline doesn't get the laugh. It's the person reacting to it. Yeah which isn't a thing at all in, in uh, stand-up. Obviously, yeah. You, yeah. you are the only thing up there. But yeah. um, I remember we had a sketch with Jigsaw um, called Beave, where I thought the word bumhole was Irish and therefore pronounced Beave. <laughs> and you go through it bit by bit. And I always liked doing it because I liked saying the funny things. But it got filmed one night and I realised it was Dan Antopolsky getting all the laughs because it was just his face registering the lunacy of what i was saying yeah and i was like oh yeah yeah that's his sketch it's not mine that's so interesting so how long did you continue performing for until you got to a point and you just decided to leave that side of things and focus on writing and and writing and directing um where was i so 2014 i made my first short film okay but i acted in that and then 2015, 2016, 2017, I made a short film every year and I wasn't in any of them, but I did entertain the thought of being in them. Oh, no, no way. I was in the next one. I also acted in Three Women Wait for Death. Um, that, was uh, one that, was, that was the one that was made part of uh, BFI Network. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was right. it. And that, and that same year, I had a tiny role in Florence Foster Jenkins as well, big feature film and so I suppose that felt like a year with a fair bit of acting in but then as soon as I started directing yeah I and that was the next short film weirdos yeah that was the point where like I just thought I uh I don't know with my acting I I I, like with my stand-up I always knew what I did that was different to everyone else and with my writing I know what I do that's different to everyone else and with my acting like if somebody sees something in me that they're like, I can't get that from anyone else and I, I want you to do it, then I am more than happy to do it. 
but I don't see I don't really see anything in my acting that's that it just isn't already being done okay so, that's that's such a honest uh, appraisal of of yourself <laughs> which is I think is quite rare actually so you when you were saying you just you said before that you know, the stand-up you knew that you were doing something that was different and unique what did you what did you feel that was that you were offering that was something different in that respect I got I got pushed out of it a bit by doing bigger clubs and having to go a bit more generic. But at the beginning, right. what I did was very, and it's only with hindsight I can see, I think that what I was doing that was different was I spoke very gently and yet I was very commanding because what I was saying was often very unexpected, frequently quite shocking, but it was all done so very gently that I think you didn't really know what was going to come next or what was okay. going to happen next. And I really regret losing that and being pushed off that position. But that particular, um, that particular uh, voice in stand-up only really works in a room where the audience have agreed to go along with you, where they're like, okay, ooh, where's this going? I don't know. And they're never minded people folding their arms and leaning back because with a lot of other stand-ups, it would be like, now nah, I'm not coming along. And with me, I always felt that they were like, oh, okay yeah i'm listening i'm completely listening and yeah i have faith but then as soon as i was doing bigger boozier rooms it just made them feel like they didn't know where they stood yeah. and i just think people just don't enjoy feeling that sometimes it's like why you watch action blockbusters that sometimes it's much more comfortable to go oh god can see that coming a million miles it's yeah. Like, but yeah you'd often rather watch that though wouldn't you and it's done really well than you'd rather watch something where you're like my god where is this going Oh, that's really unexpected. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess there's probably not the same level of patience as there would be uh, in those mainstream yeah, you know, clubs. Think, they want the gags. Yeah. I think ironically, I just took a really long time to say something that really could have been summed up as <laughs> it requires patience. <laughs> so, Sorry. no, no, no. It's really interesting. So you were saying that you arrived upon the decision to stop acting because you felt that you weren't offering something unique. What was the decision? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't in demand either. Like, okay. I think, you know, if jobs had been being offered, I would have done them. Yeah. But I just stopped hunting them up or writing yeah. them for myself. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. so, and then was that, that time of the same reason for why you stopped performing in, in comedy? Because you wanted to primarily, once you worked that out, you wanted to primarily focus on just being a writer, director? Yeah. I mean, so Super Clump, we did one year together, one Edinburgh year. And that was fantastic, although we were just about to start making money. And somebody, hello, gave everybody swine flu, um, oh, which obviously seemed a lot more lighthearted pre-pandemic. Then it just made everyone. And I was living with Ginger and Black and Tin and Dueb and Crane as well. And I think I ripped swine flu through them as well. So Ooh, sorry to everybody. I did apologize at the time. Um, and none and of them performed ever since. Never, never. Their voice boxes are no longer up to it because of all the coughing. Um, and then Jigsaw, we did three Edinburgh runs together. Um, but it did reach a point where like, we made so little money that way. And not to be mercenary, but like, you've got to eat. And yeah. Um, yeah, and then we did our Radio 4 series. We did two series of our Radio 4 show together. And then I think Crane probably got more writing work for Josh Widdicombe first. And so he was less and less available. And I think with both sketch groups, more than any other, I think we just sort of quite amicably fell apart. Okay. I think it's a bit like my acting career. It took a lot of energy to just keep it going. Yeah. So all you have to do is just sort of slacken that energy and 
it instantly drifts away falls apart and yeah. was was that the same would you say that's what happened as well with your stand-up or was that more of a conscious decision i'm just going to stop performing yeah stand-up i think was a bit more conscious because i am very lucky i'd been going seven eight years at that point so i think there were always people who would get in touch and be like do you want to do 20 here or there or you know yeah um and i'd, I'd even got on the secret mouth control um list oh yeah yeah so it was hard to let go of the mouth control inner sanctum gig list but there you go tough tough times um, tough times tough so times. do you, so do you look back at the or i'll rephrase that do you miss performing stand-up i do do you yeah I really when, do. when was the last time you performed um I went through a bit of a phase of presenting award ceremonies, not big ones, but like ones where you could basically do some jokes and like just be quite yeah. like light and funny. And I was actually like, I, again, I could see what I brought to that that maybe other people wouldn't bring is that like I had all of a stand-up's instincts and speed, but I didn't need to like smash, smash, smash a room apart yeah, okay. the way like a more match fit stand-up would. I was perfectly happy to just get some laughs sometimes, but basically everyone feeling safe hands. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so maybe it uh, maybe five six years. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah. I twenty fourteen. By twenty fifteen, I wasn't gigging. I got my first like paid screenwriting work in twenty fifteen, and I sort of threw everything into that. And but actually, funny enough, March this year, I did send out an email to a few people saying I was thinking of doing a bit of stand up again. Does anyone want me? And again, I was very lucky that like just a lot of people who run clubs were like, yeah, come along, come do ten, and then we get you back up to, you know, opening or whatever. And then the pandemic came. So I, I guess the universe really didn't want to sign. Yeah. Yeah. Right. My gentle, whimsical, harrowing shit. You could, you could always get involved in the zoom gigs, but we've talked about zoom and that's not an option. My face. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what it makes me think of? Because presumably your audience all mute themselves, right? So if they're laughing, you just see their mouths open. So there was a run of gigs that was done mainly like the Midlands and up north years ago, which was all done in cinemas because the thinking was that's a perfectly set up venue and all the seats are comfortable and why not use them on the quiet nights? But unfortunately, because the walls are covered in sound absorbing stuff, you are just stood up there in front of a load of people opening their mouths and it genuinely looks like they're yawning most of the time. And when you get off, like comics would get off the stage in front of the screen looking harrowed and all the other comics would have to go, they were laughing. I promise I'm standing next to them. They were laughing and they're like, yeah, were they? Promise. That sounds nearly as bad as the uh, the experience that I would envisage performing in the drive-thrus would be like. Have Have you seen those? I've, I haven't seen one in action. I've seen f- comics taking photos. I've only seen like really experienced comics like Shappy and Mark Watson do it where I'm like, yeah. okay, well, I, you guys know what you're doing inside and out. So you can, yeah. and also they actually, the pair of them, I think are really experienced at like Glastonbury gigs and festival gigs okay. where I think you have that same feeling of like dynamic. your audience is half a mile away yeah. and often they're lying down, which is probably a bit similar to them being and in a, the car. Yeah. And off their, off their faces. And off their faces, yeah. Yeah, which could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how they react. Yeah, I think with my stand-up, I do need people to hang hang on with me through a sentence. Okay. Yeah. So, so once once things go back to normal, do you think you actually you might sort of get back on it? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I sort of had an idea for an Edinburgh show that I I quite liked, which. Um, was sort of about me, but not about me, which I think was always what I was looking for. Because by the end of my stand-up, my last Edinburgh show was about 
um, a relationship breakup. And yeah. actually it was far too personal, but it didn't feel personal when I was just doing little previews with my mates. And then as soon as you take it to Edinburgh and I was in like a 200 seater room, then you suddenly go, oh, fuck. <laughs> Ooh, I feel really vulnerable right now and I have yeah. three weeks left to do of this. And I can't rewrite it because it's a narrative and it all kind of hangs together. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I can imagine. So what this one is going to be, what, a bit of that, but not all in, in terms no, of how I personal think, it's going to be? It's going to be? I think it's going to be about... Um, being a teenager because i write novels oh, for teenagers okay. yeah so, we'll, we'll talk about that yeah yeah so i sort of about what it was like for me to be a teenager because i remember it quite vividly because it was an absolutely horrible mess a lot of it and talk to some teenage girls who are teenagers now yeah and just see how different it is to be a teenager and well it's going to be 2020 but i guess 2021 2022 yeah. and like look at what they're reading as well like i find like girls magazines back then was such a hilarious mix of like really worldly, like position of the fortnight as if any of us were having sex and like, <laughs> as if any of us were having sex with such confidence that we'd be like, right, Gary, I'm going to sit on your feet and you're going to hang backwards <laughs> off the bed. Like, no, absolutely not. Um, whereas now they're reading Teen Vogue, which like I read Teen Vogue because it's so like politically aware and, and smart. Yeah. So I find that really interesting. Meanwhile, us boys, we were just we just had our football sticker albums. Just, oh, I would have loved some football sticker fun. Yeah, they such were a great. wholesome thing to do. They were great. I have fond memories of filling filling out my first sticker album, completing it, completing the game. I remember Crane doing that. I think when he was about twenty eight, and on the <laughs> way back from gigs, I'd bring him a new pack of stickers, wake him up at like four a.m. with them. <laughs> That's a great gift. That is a good gift. It is a great gift. Yeah, yeah. So. On to the, to the writing and directing side of things. What, what do you enjoy about that that you didn't get from your comedy career as a performer? Um, I love, uh, I mean, I love being in charge and I love the respect. <laughs> you never really get any respect in stand-up, but, like, but with, with film you do get to go, I want everything like this, and people go, yes. So when you say yes, you don't get any, any respect in, in uh, stand-up, do you mean it from, from an industry perspective in terms of how you're treated? No, I think it's more in like your day-to-day. I think uh, yeah. because it's okay. everybody in the green room does the same job you do mm-hmm. and some of them do it much better. And that's fair enough. Mm. Um, but I think when you step out on stage in front of drunk people, you're just always the clown, really. Mm. Sometimes you might really rip it apart and then someone will come up to you and say, you were great, but I think a lot of the time people are a bit dance monkey dance mm. whereas i do like in film people are like yes these are all your opinions and this is how you want it to be and this is how it will be and you're like well yeah and i like the collaboration like i love working with a production designer i love working with locations art design like costume makeup i get really involved in makeup as well and like yeah I love all that. I love like, and also I really love the writing. I think writing screenplays is like the most, the easiest and most natural part of writing to me. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. I think because I'm just so aware it's step one in a three-step process. Okay. Whereas with a book, like everything that is going to be that experience, you have to get it all down on paper perfectly as you want it. Yeah. Um, And I guess stand-up always had a bit more looseness in it, but I, often as well felt that I could write as much stand-up as I wanted. But if I got up on stage and there was just like a belligerent drunk in the front row, chances are I might have to throw everything I'd spent weeks writing yeah. out the window and yeah, just spend sure. 20 minutes on crowd control. And yeah. that would be so sad as you then drive four hours home. Yeah. Yeah. 
That makes sense. So when you started to direct, had you had you done any filmmaking courses or was it very much sort of a DIY approach to, to learning? Uh, I put myself through film school via YouTube. Okay, great. So I just watched every, and I read every book I could get my hands on and I have uh, to do a lot of like, um, just talks you can go and, and listen yeah. to a load of talks at BAFTA if you're like um, a sort of member of their crew yeah and I mean crew is in C-I-E-W it's a scheme not C-I-E um, and uh, and so I would go to see editors talk and I would go and see production designers talk and like I just just yeah learned everything I could about what everybody else's job around me would be yeah um, and that was like the only way I felt like even semi capable on set that's great so how how long did you go through that process of like learning everything taking it all in before having the confidence to shoot your first short uh i think i at the moment i thought i wanted to direct i immediately applied for this scheme it was like a competition called shakespeare's sister and it was for a short film by a female director uh inspired by shakespeare okay great i felt like god that's niche and yeah. I, I remember I got first in Shakespeare at university and I was like, come on, you must be able to do this now. So I kind of applied pretty much instantly. I thought about it. Like, I have to say, like, I, I'm always good on confidence. I think, I think that is thanks to stand up. I have no imposter syndrome and I have no really? confidence because That's I mean, fantastic. honestly, what's the worst that's going to happen? Like, if you don't do a good job, like you are not a pediatric surgeon, get over yourself. You might make a bad film. Like, I'm sure all filmmakers have one bad film in them at least. So any film you make, it could be that one. And then, you know, your world won't end. You'll still keep breathing. Have you always had that attitude? Like, so when you first got into stand-up or when you first started acting, was it, were you always that way inclined? As in never sort of thinking it over too much and worrying about whether you're going to be any good? Yeah. Yeah, I was at the beginning. And um, then when I had a really difficult two years of like dying on my ass a lot. And then I think it's the very opposite of that idea of manifestation because like when I first started, I'd never had a bad gig. So I just always visualized a good gig because that was the only gig I knew. And then once I started dying on my ass, I would get up on stage every night like, oh God, please don't let this be too bad. And of course it would never be that good because I was just going up there with the energy that like at least, at the very least, let me have a quiet death up here. And so I had to really give myself a shake and get myself back in that confident mindset because I can feel like my career responds completely according to my confidence and my uh yeah yeah confidence really well you said you just said the word you know manifestation is that something that you still do so before yes. you before you, oh okay so how, how yeah. talk me through that how you'll go about doing that with all the different things that you do and how you visualize these things so um i do that i've been doing this all year with my um my very very good friend yasmin akram um who uh, she wrote and starred in Warpaint, one of my shorts and uh and i love her and we we read a lot of books about it and like neville goddard i think is one of the like oldest manifestation uh gurus but it, it's sort of the idea of like if you think about what you want you don't worry about how you're going to get there you just visualize yourself in your end goal mm-hmm. so if i want to get my film funded and I want to get on set, then I'm not going to worry about, well, what if this financier comes on board, but that sales agent doesn't want it. It's like, I can't control that. All I can do is visualize myself standing on set, talking to my DP, 
blocking out with the actors. So I'm just going to focus on that. So I just do that. And it's called living in the end feeling. So I'm like, I'm just in the end feeling where I am making this film now. Okay. And yeah, and it's been life-changing. Like I've never worked as much as I have this year, which I think in a pandemic is kind of miraculous. Yeah, that's incredible. So that process that you've just described, will you sort of sit down, close your eyes and just be there for a certain period of time? Do you do that every day? And if so, do you do it first thing in the morning? How do you no, go about it? No, I'm not that regulated actually. I mean, okay. I basically I get up in the morning yeah. and I will walk to a coffee shop and get a coffee to kind mm-hmm. of trick myself that I'm commuting to work, even though I'm going to turn back and walk back okay. to my desk. Yeah. But um, so as I'm walking, I'm thinking about it then. Then if I'm in the shower, that's when I think about it. Like okay. when I'm waiting for my food to cook, I think about it. Like I'm, I'm never really one for, I'm going to sit down now and have 10 minutes of like just uninterrupted thinking time. Yeah. Because, but, and maybe that's a lockdown thing. I find we've all got hours and hours in every day. True. I suppose if you have kids, you probably don't, but I don't have kids. Um, yeah. So like, there's just always time. And also what I'm thinking about is things I want to happen. So they're kind of daydreams as well because yeah. they are, but they're just very focused, purposeful daydreams. Okay. That's great. And so you, and you get quite detailed with them. Is that really part of the trick? And I can feel it. Yeah. 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 So Neville Goddard was uh, recruited into the army for world war two and he really didn't want to be there for obvious reasons. Who the hell would? Um, and he wanted to be honorably discharged, but okay. couldn't make it happen. And so he just kept imagining himself back home and he was in his home and he wasn't wearing his uniform and he was touching the sideboards. He was touching the door. He was sitting on his sofa. And after about two weeks of that, he got honorably discharged out of the blue for no real reason. And so it's that kind of thing. And, yeah. and so, sorry, this is a roundabout way of saying it, but I now would love to try going back to stand up, thinking, thinking myself, like as I step on stage, thinking, I have just had a great gig and then I get on stage because it's all about like acting like you've already got whatever you want. Because I think by the end I was so braced for the worst. That's so interesting. Uh, So so you said you've done it. You you used to do it when you just stand up at the beginning, but in terms of. I sort of did it unconsciously. Okay. Whereas now this past year you've been doing it very much purposely. Doing it consciously. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Back then I just think it was like the upbeat naivety of like be, of being young and like sort of having a sort of natural talent that took me a certain distance. Right. Okay. Before I had to like knuckle down and do some harder work on it. Yeah. Okay. Um, And you were saying you've been doing this with your friend. Has she also had positive experiences from it as well and how, how do you do it together do what do you do so you're just exchanging ideas of what you're visualizing that's it that's it right. or just going oh i've just had a thought that like because there is a certain thing that like you have these affirmations where you say i have x i yep. have y i yep. am this and just imagining yourself with things that you want and bit by bit it's like well why do you want like that massive success and it's like oh, i want i want to feel I want to feel talented and I want to feel appreciated. And it's like, well, can't you just feel that now? Do you need the trappings? Right. And so bit by bit, your affirmations become, I'm happy rather than I'm a millionaire. And so okay. that's kind of an interesting process to work through. Cause it's like, yeah, if I look at all the things I wanted when I first started doing this at the beginning of the year, they've all boiled down now pretty much to like, everyone just wants to feel loved and accepted and cared for and seen. And so yeah. it's basically that. Yeah, so it's more primal needs uh, yeah. as, as opposed to, as you're saying, 
bigger picture type things. I want the big house. I want the, the money and all well, that actually, sort of stuff. I think the bigger picture is those primal things. I think the bigger right. picture is I want to feel safe. Yeah. And the smaller thinking is I want to own a house because then I'll feel safe. Yeah, like, well, okay. if you can make yourself feel safe now, then you can get that house. Sure, sure. Imagine that house, but you don't necessarily need it. And like, yeah. I find whenever I talk to friends about manifestation, they always begin with things like, um, I have got a development deal with Channel 4. And it's like, cool, cool, cool. And then bit by bit, those desires get bigger in terms of ambition. Yeah. But then eventually they all boil down to, I feel safe and I feel appreciated and I feel you're like yeah that's what anyone really wants yeah you, that's so interesting you know, where you look for it like i've always looked for it in my career and other people look for it in relationships and yeah and no one's to blame and no way is wrong it's just no, it's whatever's it's, right for you isn't it right right and i think if you get joy and satisfaction from anything external to you it's risky because that person could leave or True. they could die yeah. or you know yeah yeah you have to have that on yourself well, in Buddhism, they talk about the philosophy of the state of impermanence. So no, nothing ever stays the same. Everything's always yes. changing and evolving, no matter what it is you're doing, whether you're focusing on career, like you said, relying on a partner for your happiness. Eventually, those things are always going to change. Yeah. So if you, have a, if you can hold these things with a little bit more lightness, then you're probably going to feel or you're going to be slightly better about the situation when those things do change. That's it. That's it. And I think definitely the idea of holding onto something lightly is is hugely key because uh, definitely I think before this year, I really felt like I was white knuckling a bit with my career. That I was like, oh, if I can just get that first feature made, then I'll be okay because then I can do this, then these features will get made. And then, and then, then it's like, do you know what, man? That's all the middle. Like, don't bother yourself with the middle because it's none of my business. Interesting. Like, it's always almost so I, like you're, you're letting go really, aren't you? Of, of yeah, that. completely. But yeah. not surrendering. Sorry, I can wang on about this for hours. No, and it's hours, super so interesting. Whenever you want. But um, there's surrendering to lack when people are like, well, I'm just never going to make it. So I give mm. up. I just give up. And that's surrendering to lack and that won't lead to anything good. Yeah. But then there's surrendering to abundance where you go, there is so much work out there. There are so many opportunities out there. There's so much money out there. I surrender. I'm going to stop chasing up the route that I think this is going to come from. I just, you know, let Jesus take the wheel. Okay. I mean, I'm not yeah. religious, but you know, that yeah. kind of idea. And then you, you busy yourself with other things, just do things that make you happy. And again, all of this sort of ignores the fact that you need money to live. However, I've always worried about money because I grew up without any. And um, this year money has just always shown up in a way it never has before really wow yeah which again in a pandemic is just baffling let me ask you how do you marry that idea and philosophy with the nuts and bolts uh, that comes with the industry side of things so a lot of the time you know there's things that are decisions that are beyond our control so you might be relying to hear waiting to hear back on a production from a production company, a development exec, an agent, et cetera, et cetera. And as we know, like in this industry, it can be, everything takes fucking ages. Mm -hmm. how, how do you distance yourself from that and the frustrations that can come with that uh, to, to, this, to this mindset that you're talking about, you know, of letting it's, go? It's none of my business. I've really? pitched on four things in the yeah. last week and a half. I'd love to win all of them, but yeah. it's none of my business. Yeah. Because... Um, 
I'd say three of them, I'm like, yeah, that job is mine. And I couldn't tell you how I know, I just know that job is mine. And the fourth one, I'm not sure. But either way, it's fine because I could win all four jobs and it will not change my life. It won't make me happier than I am right now. Uh, it might bring me more money, but, um, but money's not necessarily the key to happiness. Mm. Um, so yeah, once I've pitched on something, I just try and put it completely out of my mind, which mm. is why I think I do so many things because when people say, how do you find time to like write books along films? It's like, well, but I write my films, I send them out into the world. And then like, you know, your BBC studios or BFI are like, right, we'll read and get back to you. And it's like, cool, well, I'll write a book. So I'm now going to focus on writing my book and you come find me when you want to talk to me. And, but that's fine. But I'm not watching the clock and I'm not emailing you to say, hi, any news? Because, you know, if you're emailing someone, say hi, any news. There's no news. They would have said. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're, you're master so yeah, of your own domain, really. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's such a healthy way of looking at things. Which really sounds super smug, but like, my God, I've been doing this for 14, 13 years. And you haven't and always been this year. way. Yeah. Okay. No, I started like this at the beginning because I'd always wanted whatever I'd got. Because I think, why, why was that? I think because I was very academically clever. And I think when you're young, if you're academically clever, the world is all pointing in your direction pretty much. Okay. Um, so, uh, like I was going to be an Olympic swimmer when I was younger right. and I didn't make it and that was fine. I was just like, okay, I'll concentrate on my schoolwork. And I went, I looked at some universities and I found one I liked. So I was like, I'll go here. So I got in and years later you, you look at how unusual it is to get into that university. It's quite oversubscribed. And I was like, wow, never knew, never occurred to me. I started stand up and I got gigs all around the place. I didn't realize how hard it was to get gigs because why would I know? I was just mm. brand new. And I think maybe as well, that's why I so often start doing new things because I like that feeling of ignorance when you just step into a new domain for the first time. You can't possibly be jaded because you just don't know anything. Yeah. Like you, you can learn about the craft. It's great to learn about the craft, but you don't know about the industry. You know, yeah. you don't roll your eyes when people say a script is in with a certain someone because you don't know that they take ages to read or they only have their favorites that they like. You don't know. You're just like shiny and hopeful and yeah. assume the best and, and good things usually come to you. So what was the trigger that caused you to shuffle things around and take this different new approach at the beginning of the year? It just wasn't working. That's what me and Yasmin were saying to each other. She'd been manifesting about eight months before with her career and I'd seen her career just take off and and she was like now what you're doing isn't working like the the jobs I was pitching on were just getting smaller and smaller and still they were just sort of disappearing they were just like something that looked like it was a completely done deal the next day they'd go oh the funding's gone we're not doing that anymore and so she was like just turn your back on all of it and I was like okay I did yeah, yeah, fine. I did. And I just turned my back on all of it. For the first time ever, I didn't work seven days a week. Don't think but I worked. Have you always done that weeks. traditionally, historically? Have you always worked seven days a week? About six. I write every day. Write down something. There's at least an hour I write every day. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't occur to me not to. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. Yeah. And then once I started doing that, I got an offer in on a job that was like a film for millions and millions and millions. Did I want to direct it? Pitched on it. I knew I'd got it and I did. I won it. Um, but we had like, genuinely just creative differences and I had to walk off that one. But then another one came along equally millions when previously I'd been trying to get funding for like, you know, 
sub half a million projects and couldn't get them going. And then suddenly way bigger projects were coming to me. And it, yeah, everything just felt like it was running smoothly again. It felt like I was back in my stand-up. I love that. I love that. That's great. That's I have to really fight the urge to not to like, I feel like I'm sounding smug and I feel like I want to self-deprecate, but like I don't, but I don't, I don't want to talk shit about myself anymore. I spent so many years doing that. You know what? It's um, funny you should say that. Like I've, I've, I've spoken to this about, uh, I spoke to this, uh, that, that's that issue with different comedians in the podcast, this thing where we feel we need to, you need to put yourself down because yeah. it comes part and parcel of the humor, you know, the sort of self-deprecating humor that's so akin here in, in, in the UK. And, but, you're no longer a comedian, so you don't have to do that anymore. It's fine. I don't have to do it. I don't have to. And yeah. you know what? Even as a stand-up, I didn't have to. When I first started, I never self-deprecated, and it never mattered at all. And then when I was starting to have a wobbly time of it, I'd have a couple of gigs where I felt that girls were being a bit bitchy about me, so I started dressing frumpier. And then a girl said to me, uh, I can see you think you're dressing down, and that just makes you look smug. And it's like, at that point, wow. you're just second-guessing people. Yeah. I mean... The trouble is people are drunk and you're sober. So like that, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're always going to yeah. be so much more honest and blunt with you. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then the more you put yourself down, you only make insecure people like you. And who wants them? Like, yeah. If like, I like myself. So if someone tells me they're doing well, I'm genuinely happy for them. Mm. Like I can hear that someone's got a job I went for. And genuinely, so long as I like them, I, I am happy for them because, do you know, like that there'll be more work it was always their job it was never my job we just had to pitch for it yeah that's really interesting like you can do you can learn uh all the you can learn all the information you need on your your area that you want to become you know an expert in or a professional etc but so much of it is about mindset and if you haven't got that right or even your just emotional state of being if you haven't got all those things in place Either one, it's not going to work, or two, it will work, but you're going to be acting in a way where it's not going to be leading to a sense of well-being. No. You attach too much of your identity to that. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's this idea, God, sorry, I've become such a bloody hippie this year, but um, there's the idea of like your self-concept, which is your idea of yourself, and then there's your story. And you can Mm -hmm. have a really good story about yourself, which is I am really successful and people always want to work with me. But if your self-concept is that you're a victim and people screw you over, then you can bring all this work in, but it's going to go sour because you are going to be convinced that people are working behind your back and people aren't telling you things. And like, so, you know, you can be successful up to a certain point, but as you say, if your mindset is wrong, then you've maybe got one or two good films in you and then you're going to, it's all going to go tits up. Mm. And I sometimes wonder that when I see like comics who were like, were so promising when I stopped doing stand-up and I see them kind of have some success and then I sort of see them disappear or not disappear, but like they just don't continue that trajectory. And I think I wonder, yeah, I wonder if it's something like that, that you could bring the work towards you, but you just didn't have a a kind enough and empathetic enough view of yourself Mm. and you were too hard on yourself and you, yeah. There is a lot of that in in comedy and just uh, I think entertainment industry. As in a whole, as a whole, in terms of people being hard on themselves and like, yeah. you know, I'm, 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 I've been guilty of it loads of times. You know, of just think like, oh, like somebody said, oh, you know, you're, you're doing really well or whatever, and I was like, am I? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm shit. Yeah, I still do that a bit when people say I look nice. I'm like, my jeans were four pounds. Right. And it's yeah. like, okay, yeah. I mean, wh- what do you want? Like, 
me and Yasmin always had this thing where we were like, we were the most amazing people in the world and the biggest pieces of shit in the world. And we can be both things at once. Yeah. And it's like, just bring both of them towards the middle. And like, you just, you're enough. You're just good enough. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, when you, when but you no one ever teaches you that. No, it's like, as human beings, like it's so, everything's so nuanced. There's so many different elements to us. It's like, yeah. it's always changing as well. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I remember I used to listen to like, um, interviews with really successful comedians or really successful filmmakers and they always sounded so calm about their work mm. and I'd be like you don't fucking deserve it then because you're not excited by it you're not like Wee! but yeah. like yeah of course they weren't because they were just like this is appropriate I yeah. work hard I make good things and I've worked my way up to this so you know they they don't act like they won the lottery because it just feels really normal to them yeah yeah and I think that's the mindset to be in yeah, I know exactly what you mean. So sort of, they just take it in their stride, and that's part yeah. of it. That's part of that because it's not thing. the key to happiness. Like, no, it's, no. So I mean, you, it's nice to have nice things. You know, I've been rich and I've been poor, and I know which one is better. But yeah, or, you know, rich by my standards. But yeah. Perfect. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. So applying that that philosophy you are saying before about you, your career has always been your priority. Um, and you said, you know, at the moment you're, you're not in a relationship. Has that changed? Has that shifted now? Are you now thinking, oh, actually, that would be quite nice to have? Or is it more of a case of with this new uh, abundance mindset, your energy, you give off a certain energy and then that will attract someone maybe who is of that same equilibrium at the right place in the right time if that's supposed to happen? That sounds ridiculously airy-fairy, sorry. No, 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 no. It sounds so airy-fairy and it's kind of word for word what I, uh, what I said to a friend the other day because I don't, um, uh, because I'm not on dating apps because I just don't think They're that horrendous. really. Yeah, I mean, I remember doing them six years ago and like the third person I met was my partner and we were together six years. So oh, okay. like okay. the second guy I met, I got a really lucrative voiceover job off. So <laughs> as far as I was win, concerned, win. I was like, Tinder is amazing. It's like LinkedIn and Guardian Soulmates all in one. Um, <laughs> but then this time around, I hopped on it again for a couple of weeks. And I was just like, oh, it just doesn't chime with me anymore. I just, yeah. it feels like nobody was unpleasant to me on it, but it just felt like everybody was giving like 30 people at a time a little bit of their attention. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. we're all doing this. So it, mm. it's just admin. But, um, but no, just to pull you up on something, not pull you up, that's rude, but like just something you said where, like, where I said my career has always been my priority. I think for me, my career has always been where I've put my self-esteem. And yes, I've not yeah, yeah. my self-esteem in my relationships. But mm. actually, I think that's why I've always had healthy relationships because I didn't ever look to them for people to validate me. Right, it's just okay. I would get in a relationship if I met someone I really liked and just yeah. wanted to spend all my time with. And that was sort of always how I approached it. And that led to lovely relationships that like, you know, we didn't end up married and together 40 years, but I, I don't think a relationship is a failure just because, you know, you don't end up 
with side by side headstones. Um, <laughs> but, no. uh, but yeah, but yeah, I think I do think this year I have become. I feel I've become so much more mature and happy and grounded in myself. But I've definitely become a lot more specific. <laughs> and I do think the thought of getting on a dating app and being like, "Listen, pal, I'm going to talk to you about manifesting," and you either get on board or <laughs> you don't get on board. Yeah, it's going to um, take a certain individual. It is going to take a certain individual, but then I'm not trying to put together a football team. I really do just need one person. So yeah. I guess yeah. that's you're, you're, fine. you're done. You're done with the sketch groups, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. more, no more ensembles. Reforming another eight, nine-person sketch group. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that that's that's really interesting. And going back to the filmmaking side of things, I think one thing that um, uh, emerging uh, writer and directors struggle with is partnering or finding a producer how did you go about finding a producer and is there sort of one have you got one specific relationship producer relationship that person that you work with time and time again or does it vary with each project i am quite prolific as a screenwriter so i've got about seven producers that i think are amazing and i always work with great um so i've got nicole carmen davis who uh, she's just an incredible producer and she's, uh, she was the first person to pay me to screenwrite in okay. 2015. Okay. And so that film right now has a director on board, Shelley Love, and is moving into production next year, I hope. Then I've got mini productions, that's April Kelly and Sarah Huxley, and I've made shorts with them and I've got a feature with them that we're trying to get funding for. Okay. Um, and I work with QWERTY Films, um, who made Florence Foster Jenkins, and um, I work with Michael Kuhn there is our exec and mm-hmm. Gavin Glendinning and Jamie McDonald are my two producers there. So I, I'm really lucky. I have amazing producers I work with and they're all different, but that's fine because then I'm slightly different depending on how they're different. Okay. You what I mean. Yeah. Like some, yeah. And how did those relationships come about? I met April and Sarah at the pub. <laughs> Um, Michael, Gavin and Jamie approached me with a project they wanted me to write and direct. Okay. So that was quite easy. Um, I produced a couple of shorts with my partner at the time. So mm-hmm. we knew each other from living together. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure I've ever really met anyone through like a networking thing. I think okay. finding my producers, um, they've often come to find me and that's worked quite well. Um, it's like, I think the agents, I've had loads of agents over the years and the ones who've come to find me have always been the best because they knew they wanted me. So oh, that's least, a really good point. Yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, well, what, go on. Sorry. No, sorry. I was about to say, well, equally there were, there have been producers I've approached cause I really wanted them. But I think so long as one of you really wants the other one, um, then that I feel that gives you a better chance of being a good partnership rather yeah. than being put together. But on, uh, yeah. On the agency side of things, when you have been represented by agents that you felt weren't necessarily the right fit, at what point were you, what point did you arrive at the decision to like, actually you know what, this isn't working and you, oh, you felt it was awful. time to part ways? Cause it's a really tricky thing to do, isn't it? It's really tricky. And I think a lot of the time you're waiting for them to do one big fuck up and then you can go, right, that's it. I'm off. And I think that's what people do in relationships a lot of the time that like they're unhappy, but they, they don't have the self 
confidence to go, I'm just not happy. So I'm going. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's hard. Oh, yeah. It's just hard. I mean, and, and to be honest, I've had some agents that I've parted ways with, like I was with Sophie Chap- Chaplin at Troika yeah. and I'd known her God, cause I knew her partner, Matt Green through stand up. So I'd known them over a decade. Um, and I just was, was doing more and more film stuff. And she had, was repping me as a comedian and a performer. Mm-hmm. And she was the one to say, like, you should be doing so much better than you are. And I can't, she was like, I'm not in the right rooms for you. Go and get a different agent. And like, that's probably the nicest parting of the ways. But she mm-hmm. was like, I have so much faith in you. So go and go and soar and spread your wings. And I was oh, like, okay. Nice. Yeah. It was really nice. Really nice. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, but I think now with my new attitude, I do... Well, actually, that was another thing that Josie said to me when I first started, which was, again, I think she gave me two pieces of advice and I've stuck with them ever since. But okay. one of them was your agent is not your best friend. You have friends. You don't need them to be your friend. You need to have a good working relationship. Yeah. And like, I mean, I'm very lucky right now. I have two agents who I love and I love their company and I think they're really cool and I'm really fond of them. But equally, if they need to if they need to have a go at me for something, then they need to have a go at me for something and vice versa. Mm. And it wouldn't be as if Yasmin gave me a bollocking that would devastate. Then I'd probably cry. And yeah. with, you know, Hannah and Helly, I'd be like, well, that's just a professional thing I need to sort out. Mm. And I think that does take time. I think it really helps if you grow up in the industry. Like if, if someone goes into like, show business and like they have parents who are in it however tangentially yeah. i just think there's so many lessons you know from the jump yeah. that we don't know <laughs> we, we don't know what sort of relationship you should have with a producer we don't know we don't know how long a meeting should last or how mm. you should conduct yourself or mm. that like you're not going into every general meeting looking to make a new friend yeah which i did for years right and how did that work out mm poorly really poorly i mean i made some friends but like you know i was waitressing for years and years because i wasn't making any money yeah so were you do okay so on on that side of things were you doing you're juggling part-time work for a long period of time and then if so what was the point in your career where you were able to just focus full-time on all your creative endeavors oh i mean i've still got my waitressing uniform in my wardrobe i'm not sure i'm ever going to bin it like (laughs) it's you know money's just money it's like it's not a sign of status and um do you know there's people earning oh that's mean-minded of me well no look there's people earning loads of money in the industry because they make shit and there's a lot of shit that just gets made and is quite profitable and that's cool but and if that's what you want then do that but i'd rather be waitressing and turn down jobs that i know are not gonna they're just not gonna be things i can be proud of yeah because one day i'll be dead and all that's left behind is what I made. And nobody will be going, oh, she had, she had a million in her bank account. Like, yeah. oh, well, whoop-de-doo. I'd rather you're watching my films and loving them. And so, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I would always have like good years and then lean years and good years and lean years. And so, I mean, I think I've done every job going. Like for a while, I was a stand-up comedian. I was supporting Russell Kane on tour and we were playing big big venues and it was really cool but I was also a waitress dressed as a pirate sailing up and down the Thames um and whenever you tell people that they're like oh my god that sounds so fun and it's like no no, imagine that's really your job though you're you're thinking about this because you have money and you own a flat think if you don't have any money and you're dressed as a pirate 
There, there you go. Pissing down with rain. <laughs> it's pissing down with rain. Your trousers are falling down. You don't know who wore these trousers before you. Your dad is the barman and having to help you pull your trousers up because you're holding a tray of canapes. True story. Very upsetting. <laughs> yeah, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. Um, so you mentioned before that you'd been part of the BAFTA, I think it was, I think it's now BAFTA BFI network. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a thing called BAFTA Crew. I that's right. That's yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that's really was, cool. it, was that something you were recently a part of? And, and if so, um, how was that experience? And, and was it beneficial? I think I've been a member of it for four years. I think I've been a member oh, really? of it okay. the nomination. Actually. Oh, right. I didn't realize that you could sort of continue as a member uh, once no, you've I been s- nominated. I don't know how it works. Yeah. So it's not like being a BAFTA member. It's BAFTA crew is like, I think there's loads of us in it. You pay about 30 quid a year admin costs Yeah. and you have to apply for it. And you have to show you've been in the, the industry about three years. Right. And like, I mean, it's not life changing, but it is great. Like, cause there are things that like you can do directors round tables where you sit with often quite a well-known director and there's 12 mm. of you around a table wow. and they just tell you about their life and career yeah. and you ask some questions and you go and see, talks by like you know went to go see spike lee give a talk to about 20 of us in a room fantastic that was lovely and like um yeah again and i won't name any names but that is fascinating for going to see people who you think are the absolute top of their game head of their profession Mm. and once you're in a room with them and they're talking about their career you realize they are so jealous of other people insecure just not happy with themselves yeah and it's like yeah there's no, if you're not happy with yourself, there's no magic point at which you're going to go, well, I've got 16.5 million in the bank now. Yeah. So now I'm happy with myself. It's like, you're just going to drag that shit around with you. Yeah. And so it's so useful probably to be exposed to that earlier on in your career. So you'd be like, okay, mm-hmm. I like the idea of the career, but I really, I kind of like to be happy with it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and, yeah. Okay. And um, in terms of your, your, your writing approach, uh, how do they differ from, I know you say you find writing books sort of comes very naturally and easily. How do they differ oh, no, from no, writing no. scripts? Books is hard. Oh, books is hard. Books okay. Is hard. Yeah. Books is it, was are it the other hard. way around? Sorry. God. Yeah. So uh, screenplays, I find much oh, that's easier. easier. Okay. Yeah, because Fine. I think of them as like a blueprint. I want them to be good to read and I want the prose to be elegant. Yeah. But, uh, but I know that like a locations manager is going to get all over that and a production designer is going to get all over that. Art design is going to get all over that. Do you know what I yeah. mean? So a lot of the time I'm just outlining, uh, it's sort of like a to-do list in some ways of right. what I need everyone to assemble to put in front of the camera, even if I'm not directing it. Okay. Um, yeah. But what about in, in terms of projects where you've been commissioned to write a script and it's that yeah. process of doing redrafts and then you've got to send it over to the production company and that side of things. How do you find that process um, and in terms of taking notes from, from execs? Again, I'm very lucky. Like I don't work with anyone who gives me notes and I'm like, ugh, that's such a shit note. Like everyone who gives me notes, they're fantastic. Like, Michael Kuhn in particular, the, the newest person I've started working with, like he is amazing for when I'm stuck on a script, we'll get on a phone call. And in 15 minutes, I'm like, right, well, yeah, that's, that's the solution, isn't it? And he's like, yes, goodbye. He's <laughs> gone, like, cool. Fantastic. But um, yeah, like definitely at the beginning when I put all my self-esteem in my work, I hated notes. 
if people rejected my work, it was like mm-hmm. they were rejecting me. Like I took it all very personally. And now I just, you know, even if someone says, I don't really like that script, I'm like, cool, that script's not for you. It doesn't mean I'm not a good writer. Mm. I'm still a good writer. And it, that script can still be good. It's just, yeah. it's not for you. And that's fine. So yeah, I really don't mind mind it at all. And like, I really, and it's not like I don't get notes. I get noted like hell on my scripts, like yeah. line by line stuff, you know. Um, but it, it, it always makes the script better. Oh, and sometimes I will get a load of notes. I will redraft it. And sometimes the producers I work with are honest enough to go, I'm sorry, I think I led you down the wrong path there. Actually, the way you had it before was better. Let's unpick and go back. Mm. And, you know, I, I don't mind because we're, we're like, we all have the same goal. Mm. Great. Yeah, again, that's a refreshingly healthy uh, approach to, to take. Um, what do you I'm a bit do- more prickly on my books. Okay, yeah. I, so I was going to say, so t- t- to tell me about your process on the books. How, how does that work? The books, it's just so much more work. And like the outlining part of it, like it just doesn't feel as collaborative. It is just you. And you have your editor. But I had an editor once who um, used to write not funny next to some jokes in the margins. And I was like, listen, sorry, you have to understand. I'm a stand-up comedian to my bones. So when you write not funny, I'd rather you wrote something like your mother is a whore because, because not funny hurts oh, me fuck, man. a deep level. But to her, I guess, funny was like less important than plot, less important than character. So yeah. if she'd written like love that character arc at the top, for her, that was a huge like complimentary note and not funny. She might as well have been saying syntax or look at that comma or maybe a semicolon there and i was yeah. like no, that really hurts my feelings yeah i would not appreciate that whatsoever <laughs> no but i completely see that from her perspective she had no intention of like riling me up or hurting my feelings yeah um, but <laughs> yeah yeah wow so you, you in terms of your writing for uh, books you mm. you've you've jumped in a few different genres Talk me through, how do you get into the mindset of writing for, uh, for children? Because I know you got long listed for the Waterstones Children Book of the Year for Girl Out of Water. Um, yeah, which, that was which my is, first kids' ones. Which one. is amazing, amazing for your, first, for your first children's book. How do, you, um, yeah, how do you go about getting into that mindset to write things that you feel are going to connect with that age group? Um, I don't know. I... Uh... I think that does come to me quite naturally. Like I'm quite, um, I never think I'm very maternal, but then like eight years old and up, I'm always quite good at talking to kids without much effort. And I don't know why I think maybe I couldn't even tell you. I think maybe I just can sort of, maybe it's like an improv thing. You just, if they want to talk to me about giraffes, I'm like, all right, we're all in. We can talk about giraffes. I'll talk about giraffes with you as long as you fucking want. Um, but I mean, I just write a story that I think is a good story and then an editor or my agent first and then an editor would always go through it and be like, Jesus Christ, that joke is too adult. Oh my God, is that joke about what I think it's about? And I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so like, the, yeah, the version that actually reaches bookshelves has been like gone through with a fine tooth comb because like, I, because I, I don't feel like I'm like, hello, boys and girls. Mm. Here's, here's a lovely story. Like it's, they always start off like more intense, more life or death, okay. more grim, harrowing. And, you know, I've never been very good at writing teen romance. It kind of turns my stomach. So that's why I wrote two teenage um, 
uh, ones. And now I'm, I'm writing two that are aimed uh, for eight to 12 year olds. And okay. I don't have to type romance. But I am now starting to write an adult one, which I think will have all the bells and whistles and sex and stuff in, but that's fine. It's just teenage sex squeaks me out. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. So when you got long listed for that, and when I know you've also been nominated for uh, a BAFTA for a short you've created and also long, last, long listed for a BAFTA for another project, uh, do you have the same kind of um, mentality as you were saying you had with the reviews as in you don't let them affect you or are they sort of like affirmations kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm good at this. I'm on the right yeah, path. I must be honest. Like the BAFTA nomination was before I was like consciously manifesting. So I jumped okay. on the bed with joy. And then when we didn't win, I think I did say fuck quite audibly in the ceremony. Yeah, it's understandable. So, yeah. I don't think I took that too coolly in my stride. Um, but uh no, it's not. The funny thing is, though, is things with like the, the, the all awards seem to do this these days. Like they let you know you're long listed and you're like, cool. That's not really a thing because you can be a nominee, but like you're never really a long listee. That's yeah. not a thing. So then you wait three months to find out if you're on the shortlist. And then if you're on the shortlist, do you know what I mean? So yeah, like every time you win or don't win, you're like, you have been yanking on my emotions for a year now. Yeah. And it's like the marionette with the strings that have just gone slack. <laughs> I have no more emotions left to give you, I'm afraid. Yeah, but I guess on the flip side, it's your credential, isn't it? You know, and you, especially earlier on in your career. It's like long list, oh I'll take God, that. Yeah. yeah, no, it's too. I think the BAFTA nomination has like, um, yeah, I think that has just been helpful so many, many, many times over. Yeah. Like, and it will never not be helpful. And I will never, ever not be grateful for yeah. it. Um, but again, that was a funny one. So that was the first short I made. And I remember writing the script and I sent it to some producers I knew in comedy. Um, cause I just wanted them to tell me it was good. I think I needed the confidence mm. and two just never got back to me. And I think two of them actively said, I don't like it now. I think it's really like gross. And I was like, Oh, okay. And my friend who was the director was like, fuck them. Let's just make it. So I went and made it brought it back, edited it, sent it to my agent at the time who said, oh, no, I can't send this to anyone. It's too rough. I'd be a bit embarrassed. But maybe make another one, see how you go. Didn't get into any film festivals. So for like 10 months, everyone was telling us we were sitting on a a shitty short. And people had said it was shitty from script stage. And then the second it was BAFTA nominated, it's like suddenly now apparently it's an amazing short. And it's like, so well, fun, isn't it? How I industry, it how sort of like the industry's uh, perceptions changes dramatically when something like that happens. Yeah, right, right. I think a big thing was um, people being like, the camera work is really wobbly. And then it became cinema verite <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> Love that. That's great. Like, uh, it was made for 800 quid. So, you know, we oh, were fantastic. just running to to get it done and we were sleeping in the location and you couldn't tilt the camera in certain directions because there were sleeping bags all over the floor and you know yeah then those are kind of those experiences i guess are a real education and would tee you up to then go on to make features because you've done those kind of like i think that is an incredible thing with um uh with film and you don't really get it i don't think in any other industry Mm. is you get to make a a short which is essentially a mini feature Mm. like in every intent and purposes unless it's super low budget you've made a mini feature Mm. and i think with stand-up doing 10 minutes does build you up to 20 minutes but Mm. nothing builds you up to an hour because an hour people really have to feel like they're in safe hands but you can white knuckle 20 minutes i say 
with good experience of white knuckling 20 minutes and never feeling like I had them. But with an hour, people have to feel like they trust you. Yeah. But yeah, shorts to feature, it's such a privilege to be able to do that. And I think it's just not as normal to do that in America. So people just sort of leave film school and then they're like, feature time. And they spend yeah. six years working on one feature. Yeah, which is a bit soul-destroying. You just want to, I just want to make stuff. I, That's the thing. I get yeah. impatient when I'm writing things in development, long-form scripts. I just want to be making something. I want to be on set. Of course you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you didn't want to be making things, then that would probably tell you something that you're, that, you know, that, that part of your career doesn't actually interest you that much, right? Mm-hmm. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So, what do you do outside of your career to relax and unwind? Have you got any hobbies, or do you exercise? Any sports? I swim a lot. I still swim. I went through a long phase of not swimming, but I swim now. I started um, cold water, at, like outdoor swimming yes. in the lockdown. Where do you do I it? Still, uh, so uh, the docks by Canning Town. Yeah, but it yeah. does smell of sewage. So it really depends how cool you are with the smell of sewage. Um, <laughs> And the last time I swam there, something touched my leg and grossed me out. So I don't go there anymore. Um, and Hampstead Heath Ponds, but there was a sewage um, pipe burst in the ladies' pond. So okay. I'm a bit reluctant. So Parliament Hill Lido now for me. Okay, nice. Um, yeah, I like that. So you just feel fantastic after. It's just oh such an amazing Oh my God, feeling, it's like it? drugs, isn't it? it it's yeah. meant to see off um, dementia. Apparently. I've heard that. Yeah, I do cold yeah. water showers every morning. So, right, so you're just in your shower, you have a normal shower, and then mm. you suddenly go cold or you step into no, a cold I, one? I step into a cold. Step ah. into a cold. I usually, but I'll, I try to usually exercise before, so at least I'm a bit hot, and then I go in. And do you know what? If I, you know, I sometimes wake up and I just don't feel in a good mood for whatever it is, or I might be feeling slightly down. That is just completely washed off me as soon as I have a, a cold shower. Interesting. And I might even be I'm in there for only like that. a minute. I might be not, might be a minute. That's what I do. And at the same time, I'm, you know, saving water. So win-win. Of course. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. I might do that because obviously all the pools are shut as well at the moment. And yeah. somehow lockdown two feels worse. <laughs> I yeah. don't know why it so just here, does. Here we, here we are again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know. It's like deja vu. Okay. So, so cold water swimming, swimming is a big thing for you. Yeah. Um, I... What do I do? God, it's really bad. Like, I love films. I watch a lot of films, many, much more than TV. Mm. Um, I love to read. I listen to podcasts. God, this makes me sound boring. Do you know what I really love? And I really miss driving. I used to drive so much as a stand-up comedian. Mm. And then even when we were making short films, I would always drive the Luton vans with the camera kit in because I just really love driving a van. And I haven't had a car now in about two years and haven't driven in two years. And I think that is something I really missed. Maybe I get someone to rent me a sports car for a Christmas present and I'll just go, go around a track. Just drive around the North Circular. Fantastic. Yeah. I want to drive really fast though. Like yeah. I've just done a gig in Wales and I'm heading back in the middle of the night. That's yeah. why I got all my speeding tickets. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's fun driving time. Oh yeah. I mean, proper mid Wales. I can't stress that enough. Like I literally won't see anyone on the road for an hour. I'm not just recklessly bombing through Panath. <laughs> okay. So a couple more questions. Cause I feel I've taken a lot of your time, but it's been really interesting. Uh, yeah, this has been great. Yeah. Been great. Um, favorite films. And, um, with that question, I'm going to ask you, um, which directors out there are kind of like the ones you either aspire to, or you kind of like, 
this is the career that I am going for or that I would ideally like? Um, Jurassic Park, favourite film. Classic. Always, always. Mm. Um, I think I just saw it at a certain age where I was like, oh my God, magic is real. It is fantastic. What a feeling, yeah. It was incredible. Um, There's... Do you know, I can never give a decent answer to favourite film because... I know, I feel like it's, it's, it's actually a bit unfair to me because it's, I hate that feeling when you're being put on the spot. It's like you scramble around, you panic, and as you've got all these... Well, also, I've done a load of interviews recently and I've been asked this every time and I was Have like, you? I'll just sit down and think of my favourite film. And then 10 minutes pass and I'm like... I'm going to make some toast. I don't know. I, like, I've got a huge list. And then I go, yeah, but how often do I actually watch that? And like, yeah, I watch Schindler's, uh, not Schindler's List. I don't, I watch Shawshank Redemption yeah. loads because it just makes me feel really safe and warm. Oh, that's but nice. it's, you know, but anyway, in terms of directors, like, I could think obviously like someone like Spielberg just has a way of like tapping into magic, like mm. just pure magic that mm. like no one else can. And I think he also can just like I think so much of directing is just being in charge of the tone deciding your tone knowing what it is being able to tell everyone what the tone is and like shepherding it through the whole long film process right into post-production and then be like that was it that was the tone I was going for um because sometimes it's so nebulous you can't even put it in words it's just like you know that feeling when you hear that beginning bit of music it's like that's what this film feels like Mm. um so yeah, Spielberg for that. Fincher, I think, for like just how very, like I find his really dark films make me feel very safe. Like I watch Zodiac probably once a month and I don't know why it just makes me feel like I'm in such safe hands. And I think it's because of how meticulous his camera work is and how fantastic the storytelling is and the script is amazing and all those reasons. So right. I think it's Spielberg and Fincher. Um, but the, oh, I mean, can't choose two men. But then also there's like, there's, there's, there's women I love, like Greta Gerwig, Mariella Heller. Mm. But, I, but, but it, it is kind of who you grow up watching as well. It's like your idea of famous people. Like I will never go like funny over meeting someone who got famous in the noughties onwards because right. I was an adult then. So, yeah. you know, but if I met Michael J. Fox, I would absolutely disgrace myself. Of course. Yeah. So, Yeah. Okay, great. I think it's you, art, isn't it? it is hundred percent. Was it's like there's like a, a feeling of nostalgia that comes with that because you know that was that period when you were growing up and you know you're you're informed by art at that time and it has such an impact on you in a different way when you're younger. Yeah. It's you obviously, know, the heart is so open and exactly, and, exactly that. Yeah. Also, like, sorry. No, go on. No, we've got a slight delay, but I'm also really bad for talking over people. That is such <laughs> a stand-up green room thing. <laughs> so you go. <laughs> uh god i can remember what i was gonna say now um uh yeah, yeah well no it, it just as you were you touched on before just you're at an age where you can buy in and believe in the magic and i think part of that comes with you're not at a point in your life where you're jaded by experiences and so you can yeah. fully buy into that that spielberg magic and let that take you away to another universe Well, I think that's what this year has done for me. I think that I had got quite jaded with life in general last year and everything felt very uphill. And then when Yasmin started telling me about manifestation and she kept saying, I know she's Irish. She's very down to earth in many ways, but she was like, I know, I know it sounds ridiculous. And I just thought, well, 
why not open your mind back up again? Why not open your mind up to like the way it was open when you were, I mean, God, I couldn't even say 14 because I think even by 14, I knew to like scoff and roll my eyes at things, but like 11, when I was 11 and the world was just open and I was open hearted and sincere about everything. And I hadn't been laughed at enough at that point. Mm. Um, so I was like, why not just open your mind back up and say, I know that sounds silly, but I don't mind sounding silly and I don't mind you laughing at me. Like I'd rather that than be jaded and cynical and eye rolling and like, Oh, it's all right for some, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Very British way of being. Yeah. Do you you know, my last short film I made, the horror film, I was with my two producers and we were scouting in a field and like we were hauling huge bits of iron around the field to like set dress it, like properly big bits of a vehicle. And this guy stopped and sort of remembered one of the producers from when she was younger. Um, And firstly did the, you've grown and looked at her boobs, which we were like, oh God, man. But he was a bit younger than us. And he said, what are you doing? And we said, oh, we're making a short film. And he said, oh, it's all right for some, isn't it? And it's just like, the fuck do you think? Like, like we're literally dragging bits of iron around a field. And does it look like for a second we're earning good money dragging these bits of iron around the field? But just the idea of like, it's all right for some, it's like, yeah that it's somehow like a spoiled, pampered, indulgent thing to do to shoot a short film. Yeah, I mean, with, like, that, with, with that attitude is like an, it's an, I mean, I have no idea what that person does, but that element of sort of bitterness with not necessarily of following their own like passions and dreams and seeing other people doing it is a reminder of that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Like that is something actually that like I thought even last year when I was really struggling and I felt very, very far away from achieving my dreams. And I still thought, well, at least you know what they are. And some people don't have dreams or the dreams they have, they, they don't feel like the socially acceptable ones because mm-hmm. it's not like, I don't know, to be a famous singer, it's to have a family and feel loved and significant within your family and safe. And like, that is a perfectly acceptable, like, uh, proper dream to have yeah but i think some people feel embarrassed if that is their dream when people are like i want to be a published author and like yeah i think sometimes just even acknowledging what you really want in life is yeah. really hard and feels embarrassing and as soon as you've said it it's like you think the world can then go well you're not gonna have it now fuck you for wanting something yeah yeah and it takes a lot of like faith and trust to say i want this and i'm going to get it would you be okay to share what yours is? I know we talked about it um, being, you, you, you sort of like die, you sort of dig in and it becomes more about the overall like happiness. But in terms of talking about career stuff and, and that's where your career is going in projection, is there like an ideal dream for it? There's no one ideal dream. There's, I'm really lucky, particularly this year, I am now living my dream career. Like I would like um, a love life and I'd like to own my own home and maybe I'd like a family, but maybe just a dog. I don't know. I sort of would need a partner to have opinions on that. And then I could go, okay, cool. Right. I agree or I disagree. But, um, but basically it's like all the films I'm developing this year, I want to be making them and I want them to be out and I want them to be a success. And all Mm. the books I'm writing this year, I want them to be out and, do you know what I mean? So like, yeah. it's, it's really my dreams are everything I'm on the path towards, mm. but I just want this path to keep going and to, and to earn 
a bit more money. Yeah, um, yeah, I, can, I get Which that. sounds very boring, but then I just think this year I made huge leaps ahead with aligning myself with what I actually wanted and yeah. then getting what I wanted. And so my dreams now feel like where once they felt like there, they mm. now just feel like they're just here. That's great. What and a lovely I, feeling. They're just there. Yeah, 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 it really is. I feel very lucky. That's great. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you, Yasmin. Yes, yeah. We'll do a dedication to Yasmin at the top of the episode. Um, Please do. <laughs> so two more questions I'm going to ask you before we wrap things up. Um, first is, are there any books that you've read over the years that have had a massive impact or inspired you in some way? Yes, yeah. Um, I always love Stephen King's um, On Writing. I'm sure everybody yeah. who listens to this book. I only finished that this year. I finished that in lockdown really? one. Yeah. It, oh, lockdown one. Were we air so young? Uh, it's great, isn't it? Really good. Really good. Yeah. Mm. I think it's, um, it's just so refreshing to read something by a writer who doesn't like hide behind talent and be like, I don't know. I just sit and do it. Mm. It just pours out of me. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King is like, I don't even know if I'm that good at writing, to be honest. So here is how I make myself be the best writer I can be yeah and I just think that's so humble and warm and kind like it's the most compassionate book and I I love it for that it feels like a hug um so I read that I um there are a lot of screenwriting books that like I've dipped in and out of but I'm not sure if they've changed much about how I work in the blink of an eye the book on editing Mm -hmm. I found that was that was a large part of my at home film school. I read okay. that a lot. Okay. Um, I, I, part of my whole like journey of woo and manifestation, um, the divine matrix by Greg Braden is a book okay. that I've reread a few times this year. It's just the idea that we are all connected and you are a hologram and you're existing at every stage in your life at any given point. Okay. So you have achieved all your dreams right now. You're also dead at the same time. And you're also a baby. And, um, you know, I mean, again, it's easy to scoff at and it's like really big out there ideas, but I found it so inspiring and and it it really made me start thinking along different lines and started me writing a book that I don't think I ever would have written if I hadn't read that. Brilliant. Um, Yeah. Okay, fantastic. I keep going, sorry, but I'll just take ages. That's great. Thank you. Uh, the final question I'm going to ask you, that I ask all the guests on the podcast, is uh, what does the idea of balance mean to you or not? Um, uh, you've picked a good year to ask me this. Um, I think it's calmness. I think it's contentment. I think my life right now feels really quite balanced. Like, you know, lack of physical contact aside and pandemic and not being able to see my friends physically. Um, But I don't think there's anything you could take off me that would make my world collapse. And I think that is balance. Um, I mean, obviously there's some things like my health, that's pretty huge. So yeah, if you took that off me, I'd be be really quite fucked. But, um, But I think especially in terms of my career, if you took a part of my career off me, I would cope because I don't like put all my self-esteem in one place anymore. I think it's that, I think it is just that feeling of calmness. That's a great what, answer. What, what, same question to you, please. Um, 
It's for me. It's like it has been evolving. I think, uh, well, particularly over the last year, because that was the reason why I started this podcast. Because I felt that I lacked balance, and I was very curious as as to how other creatives were finding that or not. And uh, very similar, actually, to what you're saying. Uh, it has definitely been a shift for a long period of time. It was always about striving for the next thing career-wise. And I still have an element of that. And, you know, perhaps that's ambition, but I'm sure that's right. also... Uh, what's ambition and what's dissatisfaction? Yeah, I think there's an element yeah. of that. There's also deep-rooted into, like, whatever you could classify as childhood trauma and feeling the need to prove yourself or prove myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is also, you know, intertwined with the passion I have for what I'm doing. But that aside, um, I very similar, as I said, very similar to you, this idea of trying to let go and have a bit of a distance from it and it not being the be all and end all to mm-hmm. my sense of well being. And, um, so things like, you know, I meditate every day when I meditate every day, I exercise every day. I speak Everyone to people. Everyone says I should meditate because I have terrible tinnitus. And I oh, know really? I should. But when I'm meditating, the tinnitus is just unignorable. Ah, oh, that's so hard. Yeah, that's tough. I yeah. imagine that's really tough. What about if you did a audio meditation? So if you're listening to a guided one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. I might try that. Sick nut tamp. Oh, I have got that name wrong. Headspace is one that people really like uh that's an app you can download that and they've got loads of guided meditations i don't know if that would make a difference yeah i mean it's definitely worth a try listen in lockdown two we're all made of time i might as well try it yeah yeah but but you know what's interesting as well is like is several times i've said in like talks or whatever that like the idea of like getting some distance from your work and like it not being the be all and end all and then there's always someone who pulls me up and is like oh but that's a lack of passion and it's like well I think it's professionalism because I think you could look at a lot of very talented filmmakers and invariably the one dud in their canon is the one they really, really, really cared about. The project they pushed for like over a decade to get made. Mm. Like, do you know what I mean? I do think sometimes you have to remember that like what you're doing is a job and you want to do your job as well as you can yeah. and all the passion and love and like, Oh, but, but I dreamed of this when I was a child. Like who cares if I'm watching a bloated four hour film that you were too close to, to edit better. Do you know what I mean? And I think that yeah. is definitely something that I've learned that like, you know, it's like going into an audition saying, I really, really, really need it. No, one that's the thing. And, and, and the thing is that that neediness, um, you can smell that a mile away. And oh, so, you, can. you know, I, I think it's imperative if you, you know, to be able to have that distance and not place, as you were saying, you know, your, your whole identity and importance in, in the success of whatever that project is. And also, you know, by having other passions, by having other pastimes and taking time out, that's where a lot of the inspiration comes from. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I used to beat myself up a bit that film was like my second career and I would tell myself I was too old. Like this was back when I was just being mean to myself 24 Mm. hours a day. Um, But actually, I think there's a lot of people who knew they wanted to make films. So they went to film school at a very young age, left film school, started making films. And it's like, at what point did you live a life that gave you any experience to make a film about something worth watching? Yeah. Like, where's your film about being a pirate on the Thames? (laughs) And like... 
And actually, that said, those people are always the ones that if I tell them about a thing that happened to just happened to have happened in my life, like no matter how harrowing, if I say that, like, you know, I had a really bad problem with anorexia for about 10 years, you should make a film about that. And it's like, I suspect you are so bereft of events and like themes in your life to make a film about that if something crops up, you're like, that's it, grist to the mill, throw it in. Yeah. And like, I think you can get like that with stand up as well. Whereas when you take a big step back, and you really think more holistically, you get inspiration from like, it's not just shit that happened to you. It could be a conversation you had with a friend that a year later you find you're still thinking about. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And mm. I think that ties in yeah. with that. You know, there's that old adage, right about what you know. So actually, that's pretty mm. limiting, you know. It's very limiting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And like, maybe you want to discover more about mm. like what you know. Like I have many different conflicting views and feelings about motherhood i really mm. don't know where i come down it one day to the other mm. and the horror film i've got with qwerty it's about motherhood and it's about motherhood from a different angle than anybody would expect and it was through writing that film and talking about it with my development team that i really like unlocked a few things in myself that i never realized i felt about motherhood that i was like wow I think it would have taken me years to realize that about myself, mm, but here we go. Yeah. 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 So yeah, you, it's almost like, you know, you're finding out things about yourself. It's almost like a version of therapy through your own art and creative endeavors. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's like, an, uh, it means it's sort of a journey of discovery for me as I'm writing it, mm. which, um, yeah, which doesn't mean that I'm discovering the stories I'm writing because I really do believe in plotting and outlining. But it does mean that like certain themes come up that like deepen the characters and deepen the, the journey that they're on when mm. I realized how much that's resonating with me. And it was just something I never really looked at in myself before. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. Um, where can people find out more about what you're up to uh, on the old social medias or website or whatever is your... Preference. I'm on Twitter far too much, but listen, okay. our only social life these days is a nice walk. So I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm Nat Lertzema on Twitter. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I don't Google myself, but I have been told if you just Google Nat L-U-U, yeah. it's only me. There's really no one else with that name. So if anybody wanted to find me, that's how you find that's me. Okay. Where does that name drive from? Um, my dad's Dutch, half okay. Indonesian, half Dutch. Got you. Okay. Um, all right, well, look, it's been fan- fantastic talking to you. Thanks it's so much for your time. Yeah, it's been really enjoyable. Perfect. And there we have it, Nat Lertzema in the building via Zoom. Hope you've come away inspired to manifest your your dreams. I've been manifesting that off the back of that conversation. You guys have just thought, wow, I really need to leave a very positive review of this episode on on apple podcast and uh that's what you've done because i manifest it so that's that's fantastic uh but in all seriousness yeah fantastic conversation really enjoyed chatting to nat and next week we have got andrew gold on the podcast andrew is a documentary maker he's a louis theroux in the making he's had uh, documentaries on bbc3 hbo and we talk about his whole journey to becoming a uh, documentary maker and um, host, as it were. So that's a really good conversation uh, to look forward to in the next episode. So until then, see you later.
Balancing Acts is made in association with the comedy crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.